Let's pray, let's ask for God's help uh, as we come to his word. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks, uh, the God who desires that we should know you, uh, trust you, have our whole life centred on you, for that is good for us. And so we pray, Father, tonight you would uh, grip our hearts with this passage, which for many of us is familiar. Father, we pray that we would learn new things of the glory of Jesus and we would trust him more deeply tonight. Father, please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified as your word is heard and received in our hearts. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine was at a bus stop recently and he decided to strike up a conversation with a lady next to him. He simply asked, where are you heading? She turned, looked at him and with a somewhat blank expression said this, what does it matter? My son has just died and I don't know what I'm going to do. We live in a world marked by trouble. Here are some of the news headlines recently while preparing the talk. Uh, a shooting in California, children dying from the flu, a mother drowned her own children in the bath, no one can afford to buy a house and no one seems to be able to sell their house. The stories just go on and on and on. We live in a world of poverty, war and conflict and it is troubling and it can leave us gripped by fear and worry. But many of us also have trouble in our own hearts from any number of things. Whether it's relationship struggles, marriage or singleness, family tension and conflict, financial issues, unemployment, stress or sickness. And here in John 14, it's the night before Jesus will be crucified and his disciples are deeply troubled too. Uh, we heard last week in John 13 that Jesus dropped two bombshells on them. Uh, firstly, verse 33, verse 36, he told them that he's about to leave them and they cannot follow. Now, that would be very troubling. They have left everything to follow Jesus. And having spent three years with him, they've seen him heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, teach with authority about the kingdom of God. And now the man who promised them eternal life is leaving and they cannot go with him. But to make things worse, one of the disciples, Peter, who seems to be the best of them and actually gets who Jesus is, it seems, he's been told that he's going to betray Jesus three times. So the disciples are distressed. They are troubled. And Jesus speaks words to them of comfort. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And yet the comfort that Jesus provides in these words tonight are not just for sad disciples, but an incomparable comfort for all who will listen to Jesus and respond. The first comfort is in verses 1 to 4, where Jesus tells them that they have a home. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus' words in verse 1 are strong and clear. Do not let your hearts be troubled. There is no reason to worry. They should not worry. And central to overcoming their trouble will be trust. 
He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is happily equating himself with God and calls them to trust him. Yes, he's leaving, they'll see him no more, but it's for a good reason. Verse 2, he is leaving to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Uh, Although it might not seem obvious at first, Jesus is actually talking about heaven. He's leaving to secure a place for them in heaven where there are many rooms. Now, I don't know how you picture or think about heaven in your mind, but I doubt none of you picture heaven as an overpopulated apartment building. Overpopulation density is our great fear as Melburnians. But Jesus is not saying that heaven is an apartment building. He's actually very kindly using familiar concepts for us to understand. Heaven, his father's house, will be our new home where there is ample room and provision for each of us to dwell forever. Do not be troubled. Trust me because I am going to prepare heaven for you. But it raises an important question, right? What is taking Jesus so long? He's like the worst Airbnb host ever. Has it been that, should we picture that Jesus has been rushing around, cleaning toilets, making beds, getting ready for over 2,000 years? But I think that would be to miss the point. It is not that Jesus is in heaven preparing it for us, but that it is by going into heaven via the cross that he will prepare a place for us. Uh, Back in John 13 verse 1, Jesus has said that his hour has now come. All of his life and ministry has been pointing towards this hour, this death on the cross. It is Jesus' death that secures our place in heaven because it is the cross that deals with our sin that would keep us out of heaven. The cross is where God displays both his justice and his love. As Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, he dies our death and secures our peace with God through blood. And so Jesus is leaving his disciples, but they should not be troubled because he is going to prepare heaven by dying and rising. And notice he says that if he's willing to go and do that at such great cost to himself then we can certainly trust our risen Saviour will return. Verse 3, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And so, although for these disciples Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, we know he has. He has endured the shame and agony as he not only died on a cross, but endured the wrath of God himself for our sin. And so notice that the comfort Jesus is offering is not based on our efforts. Heaven is not for good people or with good church attendance, nor is he offering a comfort that depends on your circumstances or emotional stability. No, no, the comfort Jesus is offering here is the absolute certainty that heaven is yours, that you will be accepted by God and with him forever because he has secured your place through his death and resurrection. Uh, One of my guilty pleasures in life is uh, the love of a good TV drama uh, and especially hospital drama. 
and I think actually these shows are really easy to love because they essentially make the same show in 20 different ways. Uh, at Grey's Anatomy, New Amsterdam, The Resident, ER, whatever, you know, choose your poison. They're all rubbish, but they're just so good to watch. And I think what is so captivating about hospital drama is that they constantly deal with the issue of death. But also, at times, they wrestle with what happens after death. Uh, you'll constantly hear this classic phrase as the uh, struggling nurse tries to comfort the griever. They are in a better place. No reason is given for how they know this is the case, but whether religious or not, atheist or sceptic, sometimes whether they're good or bad, the common refrain of comfort for those grieving is that they are in a better place. But you won't just hear this on TV. And I think it's because comfort in what happens after death, I think, is a universal desire, something we all long for. And so Jesus is comforting us here, not to just say that he knows what happens after death, but that he has actually secured our welcome in eternity. And yet, Jesus is actually saying more than that. He's saying that he, and he alone, can offer that comfort. In verse 4, he says to the disciples, you know the way to the place that I'm going, to which Thomas replies, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And yet the question and the lack of understanding from Thomas leads us to the second comfort that Jesus offers in this passage, that they and we do indeed know the way to be with God in heaven forever. And before you might want to laugh at Thomas's kind of obvious question, I want to suggest to you that he is actually a model to follow. Think about it. Jesus has said, you know something. Thomas is like, I don't know. So he asks a question to get clarity. And yet, I'm sure, like me, you have sat in many sermons, many Bible studies, realized that you haven't understood, you've got nothing out of it, and done nothing about it. The obvious questions are the best ones. And especially given what Jesus is talking about, if we should have confidence and clarity on any topic, it's this, how to live with God forever who loves you. And so Thomas asks his question, and Jesus responds in the famous words of verse 6. He answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, I'm sure that these are familiar words to many of you. Some of you probably grew up with these words as lyrics to songs. I think we sang three different songs this morning that all included these lyrics. And some of you who particularly were raised in the church are so weird that you can't hear the words John 14, 6 without saying cha-cha afterwards, thanks to Colin Buchanan. They're really familiar to us. But that comes with a caution. Do not let them be so familiar to you that they lose their power and effect. Because this is a statement with universal consequences and implications for every person, not just in this room, but the whole world. What is the way to God, asked Thomas. Jesus says, I am the way. Now, it's important to clarify, he's not simply saying he knows the way or teaches the way. 
Nor is he saying that he is simply a way to follow, as if Jesus merely sets the example of a good life to get into heaven. No, no, Jesus himself is the way, the one we must come to know and trust in order to have a place in God's house forever. Jesus is the way because he is the truth and the life. There is a sense in which the I am statement, John 14, 6, it actually encapsulates everything that we've heard and seen from Jesus in these first 13 chapters of John's Gospel. He is the truth. Not simply that Jesus tells the truth, although he does, but that Jesus himself embodies the truth about God. He reveals God to us because, John 1, he was the word that was with God and was God. He is the word that became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus is God's gracious self-disclosure. This doesn't mean that there's no truth anywhere else in the world that we can know or find out. But Jesus is saying that he and he alone is the truth about God which is therefore the fundamental truth and reality we must know. He is the truth and he is the life. Jesus, as God himself, is the author, the origin of life. But he also is the one that gives life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says he's come to give life, life to the full, life that lasts forever. In John 11, with Lazarus, he says that he can offer life even beyond death itself. What is the way to God? asked Thomas. Jesus says, I am the way. Notice he doesn't say a way as if there were other options. He is the way. There is no alternative. And so when taken seriously, Jesus' statement here claims to end any speculation about the world religions. Jesus' statement answers the question of how many gods there are, what God is like, how we can know God, and if he will accept us. This statement also tells us that there is actually no fence-sitting with Jesus. He can never be kind of the way. Jesus calls for a response. And in our world of pluralism and relativism, where we just make up whatever we want and anything can be true, This is a profoundly countercultural and controversial claim. And many have seen in this an exclusive, even arrogant statement. But you actually need to remember the context in which Jesus is saying it. When Jesus tells you that he is the way, the truth and the life, he is actually offering a comfort that lasts forever. And so while some might find him offensive... These words in reality are generous and life-giving, but they're actually also inclusive. That is, this is an invitation to all to know the true and living God personally, not because we deserve it, not because we asked for it, but because in love he is the God who has sought us. And so, although what Jesus says next is seemingly exclusive, It actually makes perfect sense. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. You cannot separate knowing God from knowing Jesus. 
Uh, Once again, the disciples ask a question that shows they're really having some trouble coming to terms with what Jesus is saying. Uh, This time it's Philip who asks, perhaps with a hint of frustration in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Now, I'm glad that would be enough for Philip. No one has seen God in John 1 and God told his people in Exodus if they did see him, they'd die. So it's probably a good thing that Philip, it's enough for him to see God just once. But you can kind of get his frustration, right? He's like, come on, Jesus, enough with the metaphors, enough with the cryptic language, just show us God once, that's enough for me. It's actually a very modern question, I think. Why doesn't God just reveal himself and end the speculation altogether? It's very modern. And yet Jesus responds to Philip with remarkable patience and kindness. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Philip's question is a denial of the very reality standing before him. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. So Jesus essentially is saying to Philip, your question doesn't really make any sense. But Jesus not only displays patience, he generously invites Philip and us to look at the evidence. In verse 10 he says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. How can we be sure that Jesus and Jesus alone shows us God? He says, look at my character, look at my words, and look at my works. Uh, Jesus is not afraid of investigation. He welcomes it. He's confident that as we look at his life and ministry, and especially as we look at his death and resurrection, we will see God at work. In verse 10, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, Notice he's not saying that he is the Father, as if sometimes God is the Son and at other times he's the Father. No, No, the Father and the Son are distinct, But there is what's called a mutual indwelling between them. One God, three persons, what we call the Trinity. Now, that's a difficult concept to understand, but it shouldn't really surprise us that the God who's outside of time and space, the God who has no rival or equal, the God who created the world simply by speaking, would be beyond our comprehension. And I think Jesus actually knows that it's hard for us to comprehend what he's saying. And so he says, look at my life. Verse 11, at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Those who heard Jesus speak were amazed at his teaching, one with wisdom and authority. Those who saw him calm the storm and raise the dead worshipped him. Even his own mother and family came to confess him as God himself. And so if you're here tonight and not yet a follower of Jesus, I think the question from this passage is pretty clear. Why aren't you following Jesus? 
Have you listened to his words and looked at his life, his death and resurrection, to be sure that Jesus is not the way, the truth and the life? As Jesus speaks comfort to us tonight, there is a clear focus on a call to believe in him. That is to trust him as our saviour and king, the one who makes us right with God. John 14, like the whole book of John, is a call for us to trust Jesus and find life in him. Did you hear the repetition in the passage, verse 1? Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 10, he says to Philip, don't you believe? Verse 11, believe me when I say. Verse 11, at least believe on the evidence. And isn't this wonderful? Jesus is saying to us that there is hope beyond death, which is not based on fantasy or wishful thinking or the mere sentiment that they're in a better place, but on God's own revelation of himself in Jesus, a real man in real history who taught, who lived, who died, who rose, witnessed and passed on so that we might believe and trust him too. So have you put your trust in Jesus and received the comfort he is offering you? Both Thomas and Philip show us that we can be very familiar with Jesus, his words, his life and his teaching, but not actually grasp and believe what he's saying. As someone that was raised going to church and as someone that now works with a lot of people being raised in the church, it isn't just possible but likely for us to be familiar with Jesus, but never actually grasp the magnitude, the glory of what he is saying and never actually respond with the trust he calls for. But I'm sure for many of us, we are confident that we have responded to these familiar words. We've come to the Father through Jesus. He is our Lord and Saviour. And so if that's you, I think the passage has two questions for us. Firstly, are you actually enjoying the comfort that Jesus offers you? When troubled, where do you turn for comfort? Is it from this world or from your Saviour? Is the comfort Jesus has brought you by his death actually transforming your experience in this world? How you respond to trouble in this world will show you where your home is. Believing in Jesus is not to be a one-off decision where we just kind of get our ticket to heaven, but a daily decision to centre our life on Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. Look at verse 7 again. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to Philip, you will know the Father in the future He says, from now on you know him. Jesus has brought us into a real and living relationship with God and we know him now. And so the comfort being offered in this passage is not just for the future, but to be embraced every day. And so whether you're troubled by life in a broken world or troubled in your own heart, you must turn to your saviour Jesus. Paul says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is not what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So that's the first question. Are you embracing the joy and comfort that Jesus is offering you every day? But secondly, are you taking seriously the reality that Jesus is the only way to God? Throughout Christian history, certainty that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to God has motivated mission and evangelism. The desire to save the lost, whether unreached people groups, the secular, the atheists, or even those of another faith, has been driven by Jesus' words, which are both a welcome and a warning. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, believer, are you taking that seriously? Whether it's with your family, your friends, your colleagues, or your neighbours. Because Jesus is telling us tonight that those who have come to know and trust him, who have embraced his saving work and the comfort he offers, it must not leave them unchanged. Which leads us to the third comfort that Jesus is offering in this passage, the surprising words of verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Do those words stand out to you when this passage was read? Whoever believes in Jesus will do the works he's been doing and will do even greater. So, if you're a Christian here tonight, is that your experience? Have you been casting out demons in the office? Healed the sick in your lunch break at uni? Multiplied loaves to feed your friends? Walked on water to the amazement of others? And especially, have you been using your free time to raise the dead? Like, can you imagine how crazy this sounded to those original disciples? Those who had tasted the water turned into wine. Those who had been in the boat when Jesus walked past. And especially those who saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. You will do greater works than these. So what is Jesus talking about? I think it's hard to imagine that Jesus means they will be greater in terms of more impressive or spectacular. Perhaps he means greater in number. Jesus was only around for three years and the disciples and the Christian church will be around for thousands. Perhaps he means greater in scope, that Christians will do these works across the whole world rather than simply in Palestine. Maybe. But I think that's actually missing the point. Jesus does not mean the disciples will do greater works either in quantity or quality because I think the key to understanding it comes at the end of verse 12. Disciples will do greater works because Jesus is going to the Father. So the works Christians do are greater because they take place in a greater time. All the works that Jesus has been doing up to this point are pointing forward to his main work in his death on the cross. His works, not just the miracles, but his life and his teaching, they are all signposts to his death and resurrection. But as Jesus goes to the cross only to rise again, ascend into heaven at the right hand of his Father, he then pours out the Holy Spirit on his believers. 
And so the works Jesus has been doing are pointing to the cross, but the works the disciples will do through the indwelling of the Spirit will be in light of Christ's finished work on the cross. And so as Jesus dies to secure our forgiveness and prepare a place for us in heaven, it is now through spirit-filled disciples of Jesus proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ's saving work and the comfort he offers that we do the greater works that Jesus is promising we will do. So he's actually saying it is the logical and necessary response to those who have trusted in Jesus to have the conviction and desire that others know him too. So in a sense, we cannot say Jesus is the way, the truth and the life without taking seriously its universal implications. Those who are comforted by Jesus embrace the mission of Jesus. Those who know Jesus want to make Jesus known. And so, is that you? This is not to say we're all going to end up on the mission field. For someone, it might be as simple as doing GSF, sharing Jesus with a colleague or a neighbour or a family member. It might be teaching in Sunday school or youth group. But remember, Jesus is not saying the burden is all on us. Remember that the works Jesus does are the Father's works. And the greater works that we as God's people will do now is actually Jesus' work through us by the Spirit. God brings people to life to know Jesus, but he does it through Spirit-filled people as they proclaim the gospel. And so if you are a believer in Jesus here tonight, are you embracing Jesus' comforting words that you will do greater works? Are you actively seeking and taking opportunities to proclaim Christ, confident that God works through you? And knowing that, are you actually praying for opportunities? Because that's where Jesus goes in verse 13. As we embrace the mission of Jesus, we are promised our prayers are heard and answered. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Uh, The blank check that Jesus seems to write in these verses I think has perplexed a lot of Christians for a long time. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. It seems pretty clear, right? And yet for lots of us, this has not been our experience in praying. Now, Jesus, of course, is not saying pray for a Ferrari, get a Ferrari. Pray for a husband and the next guy that works in the church is the godly man you've been looking for. That's not what he's saying, although we might be on board. Jesus is actually very, very specific, I think. Whatever you ask, in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. To pray in Jesus' name, firstly, is to recognise that we can only approach God in prayer through his saving work. But more than that, to pray in Jesus' name is to come to God with your desire and your priorities in alignment with Jesus. It's to come to God and say, I want what Jesus wants. I want to do his work. 
And yet, for many of us, there is still a level of confusion, right? I've been praying for family members to be saved for years. Doesn't Jesus want that? But I think what Jesus is promising here is not that every prayer from every believer in every age will get a yes. Nor is it a promise that our prayers will be answered in the way we would want them to be when we want them to be. It's a promise that when we come to God on Jesus' business, in Jesus' name, he will do it. And so this promise is motivation to pray and invest in the work of Jesus with confidence that God is faithful to work through you. And what could be a greater promise to motivate our prayer life than this? Even if we don't fully understand how the promise works, clearly it's a call to pray. But more than that, this should actually cause us to reflect on whether our prayers are in alignment with what Jesus wants. Are your prayers consistent with the desire to see God glorified through the Son in your life or for God to glorify you in a comfortable life? This is a call to have our prayers shaped by God's word so we know what brings glory to God. And more than that, this is a call to be consistent and faithful in prayer, knowing God hears and answers. Uh, Many of you would know Peter Adam. He's an Anglican minister, former principal at Ridley College, uh, and a really faithful gospel preacher. Uh, He posted this on Facebook earlier this week. He says, My brother John came to Christ on his deathbed just four days before he died. We came from a non-Christian family, and I was the first person in my family to be converted. And when John died, I had been a Christian for 50 years. I wish I could say that I had prayed for his conversion every day, but so often I'd become discouraged and given up. John seemed so uninterested. Oh, that I'd prayed every day. Oh, that I'd waited on God every day. Oh, that I'd begged God every day to convert my beloved brother. Do you have a track record of long-term praying? Are you a long-term prayer? Or do you give up easily? We must learn to wait on God. So often I think we we want what Jesus is promising here to be transactional. Put in your prayer, get what you asked for. But all throughout this passage, the comfort that Jesus is speaking of is relational. You know the Father. You have a place in his house. Jesus is at work in and through you by the Spirit. So turn to him in full confidence and pray. Pray for opportunities to make Jesus known. Pray for courage and wisdom. Pray that God will open eyes, soften hearts, give life, reveal himself and save. Pray and invest in the greater works. Jesus promises he will do through you. Because if you are comforted by what Jesus offers you through his death and resurrection, you will show it. He offers to all who come to him and believe an incomparable comfort. Heaven is your home and I will take you there. You know the way because I am the way and you will do 
greater works. Have you embraced this comfort? The comfort Jesus generally, generously offers you tonight. Have you responded to Jesus who says, believe in God, believe also in me? And if you have, are you showing it? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we come to you now through the saving work of Jesus and that you have spoken to us tonight amazing words of comfort. We thank you that through Jesus, heaven is our home. A place with you in eternity is secure through his death. And thank you that he will come again to take us there. Father, we pray, please capture our hearts again with this wonderful reality. Move us to be people who faithfully and urgently give ourselves to the mission of Jesus so that more might come to know and trust him. Align our hearts, our wills, our prayers to his, so that you, our Father, would be glorified in the Son through our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.